Index investing or passive investing has grown more popular with investors. Even Warren Buffett has the benefits of owning an entire index like the S&P 500 over the long term. An example of an index tracking ETF is BMO's S&P 500 Index ETF. It's the largest ETF in Canada that tracks this well-recognized and popular index. It provides exposure to the returns of the market cap weighted S&P 500 Index at a low cost the management fee of just 0.08%. This broad market ETF makes for an efficient building block in a portfolio, saving you time and effort while mitigating single stock risk. If you're looking for exposure to the largest and most liquid public companies in the United States, this ETF delivers an easy-to-use solution and instant diversification. Commissions and management fees and expenses all may be associated with investments in exchange-traded funds. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 117. As always, joined by the three amigos. We've got Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Passive Management, Rich Diaz, PGM. What's going on? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, gents. You made it through the uh, the, the New Year's partying, Rich? Me? Oh, I had a great night. <laughs> Just chilled. Um, I watched Heat. Uh, I ordered some sushi and I drank a very expensive bottle of red wine. I was in bed at 1201. <laughs> Where was this? I was at home. It was one of the best New Year's I've had in a long time. It was, Man, it was you great. sound like Keith. <laughs> you know, those with young children will realize this. You know, when you have young children, for New Year's, you actually counted, counted in at, say, 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. or something like that. And then as you get older and the, your kids are all growing up and they're out, you know, doing their New Year celebrations, uh, you actually go back to doing the same thing. So I think we ran it. We rang in New Year's at 1030 or maybe 11, something like that. That's it. Yeah. We had a good I was time. Say as well. There's no chance you're making it to midnight. <laughs> it's a tough one. But we had some friends over, you know, we had, uh, you know, lots of great food and we actually played a bunch of board games and, and stuff. Some good Pinot? And, uh, and some bad Pinot sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Keith Keith gets a lot yeah. of bad Pinot gifted to him. <laughs> I'm just joking. But yeah, it was a fun night. How about you, Steve? What are you down there doing? For uh, your just in, yeah, I'm in Palm Springs. My uh, old man lives here. So just uh, working on the golf game, which is is not very good. But um, yeah, you Palm come Springs down in Florida? Here. Is it Florida or California? No, California, man. Okay. The failed state. But uh, yeah, no, it's always a good time. We we always come down here, just, you know, one, usually once a year around the holidays. And yeah, you know, got a decent house. I think he moved here like ten years ago, and Canadian dollar was basically on par with the U.S. And it was a nice little currency trade for an old man that uh, doesn't follow financial markets. Good Sweet. trade, good trade. Yeah, well, good speaking trade. of trades and everything, what do you got for us, Steve? What are we looking at? Yeah, we've got uh, very, very special guests here today. Uh, I'm probably one of the most excited for this one. Uh, I figured Rich probably is too, but we've got Doomberg, uh, which is the green chicken. And, and for those of you that aren't familiar with Doomberg, um, it's basically, you know, it was a personality, I guess, Rich, that initially came onto Twitter. 
Um, they started writing a very popular Substack newsletter about basically predominantly around energy, um, energy, geopolitics, uh, basically became, I think, if not one of the most read uh, Substack newsletters out there. To over 200,000 followers on Twitter, then left Twitter and went exclusively to Substack, has you know several hundred thousand followers on Substack, uh, and it's basically become like a research firm or research company. Um, and it, you know, they're called Doomberg, they're a green chicken, and which allows them to be sort of anonymous um, and allows them to write freely without sort of repercussion. And I think that they're one of the most widely followed, widely respected uh, commentators on, on, you know, several of these markets and particularly energy, which is why we wanted to get uh, Doomberg on the show. Uh, they've written, I, I subscribe to them personally, uh, and they write a lot about, you know, the energy transition, um, you know, the ability of wind and solar to sort of take over fossil fuels and the challenges that are going to come with that. And, and they write a lot about nuclear and obviously Canada being a, a, a large resource based economy. I figured there was probably no better person to get on to discuss the perils of the energy transition. So the good news to all this is that we'll have a really great discussion. Um, the bad news is I haven't had lunch yet. I normally have chicken <laughs> this time of day, so this could be a bit a bit tough. Ever you ever see the old uh, what was it? Rich, maybe it was the Simpsons. You know, Homer will look at someone and you see like a turkey on their head. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. It's definitely the Simpsons. <laughs> I mean, although yeah. that's been in like Warner Brothers too, I feel like there's definitely been a a Warner Brothers episode or two that did that. Yeah, I agree. I could have that going on though in my head today. That's okay. Yeah. So we're gonna the, congratulations, Steve. Just props to you, buddy. That's quite the coup to land someone as uh, sort of respected and as widely followed as Doomberg. So good. Good. That's either a coup for you or a coup for the Looney Hour, but I'm not sure which one. It's probably. I, know, I think the Looney Hours. Uh, you know, picking up a lot of great guests. We've got a you know whole bunch more lined up already for the new year. So so look, plenty of big things happening here. But uh, like I said, super excited to have on Doomberg the Green Chicken. Uh, highly encourage you guys to check out his Substack. We'll put a link to that uh, in the description. Uh, I subscribe to it. I think it's like 40, 40 bucks a month or something. But honestly, it's just like if you really want to understand um, energy markets and, you know, again, the the transition that we're facing and, and all this and really kind of cut through the BS, because I think we can all agree, Rich, that um, I think the, the mainstream media has really failed. Uh, particularly here in Canada, to really dive deep and and ask hard questions and 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 really turn over rocks and figure out okay what is what is the realities here and what are we actually facing what are the what are the repercussions and and, and, and so I think that they've hey, done a Steve, tremendous job. What what do you think that is? I mean, I I always love the conversation between you know we call it mainstream media or traditional media legacy. And- legacy media and you know obviously everything has you know been turned on its head because of you know the internet right rich yeah but the yeah it's there but why do you think they're the mainstream media is not having success are they unwilling or just not able to i think that everybody in my opinion is kind of afraid to take a different view right i mean it's like if you sort of deviate from or do you start asking hard questions right i mean we saw this during the pandemic and you know, it's like you, if you started asking questions and weren't consensus, you know, you were almost deplatformed. Um, and so, I don't know, my opinion is that journalists and media are just afraid to ask 
hard questions. There's no like investigative journalism is almost not a thing anymore. And, and, and that's, that's kind of my opinion is, is people are just afraid of being canceled and nobody wants to ask the hard questions. And so I think it's yeah, the, uh, I have a different the, view. The, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I think it's the format as well. I mean, if you're looking at, you know, again, mainstream media, whichever one you want to think of, you know, you might have three minutes to share your view and yeah. everyone claps and then it's on, you know, the commercial comes on and then on to the next thing. And it's a pretty big production. I mean, Steve, I know you've been in, you know, some of the, the media rooms doing the live interview ones. And, and I have as well. And you see, wow, this is a pretty big machine. And meanwhile, you're like three guys with a shovel, you know, can sort of have a nice conversation gets, have a guy on with a chicken as a face and, but have a conversation in a style because we're not, I like to say we're very good amateurs. We're not professionals maybe at, at this point, you know what? but, and that's what people relate to. These, these are also like complex topics, right? So I'll, I'll go periodically on um, local radio in Vancouver to chat about, you know, the real estate market. And I remember like, for example, like during the pandemic, right? They're like, okay, Steve, can you come on for five and a half minutes to talk about what's happening in the real estate market? And they're like, why are house prices going up? And it's like, you, you have to ask yourself, like this is a mainstream media local radio show who are the listeners who is the audience and so it's like i'm not going to go into like well you know we have this massive currency debasement and governments are printing all this money and the bank of canada is uh you know purchasing 40 percent of all government debt issuance you, you know what i mean like it, the level of sophistication isn't there so you just have to say well listen there's not enough supply and then there's more demand than and and so prices are going up and interest rates are low and and that that's like the level of the conversation so i think when you have the keith to your point you have long form content like these podcasts or like doomberg substack is you can really go in depth and you know yes he puts it behind a paywall uh but i think it also ultimately filters out like he knows who his target audience is it's you know people that really want to learn that are maybe a bit more sophisticated and and have passion behind these these topics and they're able to charge and actually people are willing to pay because you know he knows his target audience but there's also there's a different angle to this just if i may i mean i agree with you in principle but i think it's worth at least articulating maybe a differentiated view which is i think partly a lot of these journalists feel like it's their responsibility to um manage the narrative and i think that that's either because they're afraid to go into politics and just do it properly or um and i think or you know maybe it's they think it's their moral duty um and i think but ultimately i think it's also because they don't trust the listener and i would say that that's fundamentally one of the, the issues i have sorry that 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 aggravates me more than ever i think you know if you, how can you you know you it's it's there's a trust factor it's if you trust your listener then you can trust them to provide sort of context, history, articulate, let's say, not necessarily both sides, but the differences and the challenges that each of these subject matter have. And when you don't trust your listener and you don't trust your reader, um, you know, you, you, you you're infantile, infantizing, making them, <laughs> you make them, they're, they're not children is what I'm trying to say. I screwed that word up, but you know what I mean? It's like, and I think that that's um, when you sort of when you think of like the Walter Cronkites of the world or you think about I used to watch 60 Minutes as a kid. They used to go in depth into these specific subjects and the answers were complicated. And I think people really appealed to uh, people were really sort of attracted to the fact that the world is not so complicated. And now I think that between the activism 
And um, there's also blame to be laid at the feet of the viewer, which is people seem to just want to live in their echo chamber. And the market is telling you that if you are at Fox News and you just feed this echo chamber, if you're a Guardian newspaper out of the UK and you just feed that echo chamber, people gobble it up. They love the red meat. And if you try to be nuanced, they think that you're not pure. <laughs> And you fail some kind of purity test. And I think it happens on both sides of the spectrum. And I think it's it's up to us, I think, to be sort of more balanced. And I'm grateful to people like Doomberg to do the same thing. So are you suggesting that mainstream media, they've actually, they've become less of being a, a journalist, practicing journalism over the years. Instead, they're doing more editorials. There's no more reporting anymore, investigative research and all that. Yeah. And that's what the podcast can do. It's, Which is fine, uh, though, Keith. But it's okay to be an editorial. It, it's you should just say at the top of the banner. Exactly. It's not okay to be an editorial if people don't know it's an editorial, right? Exactly. Because you know? exactly. people, you know, this is going to be a a pretty, uh, you know, use the word interesting if you want. You know, election year for for the Americans, and you know, people just believe what they hear on you know whichever whichever colored TV channel they're watching. They think that's the news. Like that is actual what, what they should be listening to. Anyways, uh, you know, we are trying to uncrack that nut or crack the nut, I guess. And we'll have a good conversation here now. Yeah. Let's, uh, without further ado, let's flip over to Doomberg right now. Doomberg, cool. welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. I mean, does it get any better than the Looney Hour? Cool. There Thank you so much. I'm I'm a little bit giddy. I, I've been following you for a long time. Actually, last night I read your um sort of so your goodbye and so long to Twitter. And I think integrity in this business is lacking. And I think what you guys sort of do and articulate and and to me that you just should be. I just want to give you your flowers because I, I thought what you said in that in that quite a long letter was is really important. And so thank you by the way. Thanks for joining us. Um, thanks for all the sort of information you put out there uh, without fear or favor. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. And and again, a real honor to be here. Looking forward to it. I was getting caught up on some of your more recent um, episodes. And what an honor to be alongside uh, some of the guests you've had, like Mike Green and my good friend Chris Kiefer. And so hopefully I can live up to the high standards they've set. Cool. Yeah. By, well, so by the way, by the way, Rich is uh, always looking for a date. So he's been extra nice. Maybe you can <laughs> introduce him to, to your network. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, Rich. Knock it okay. out. Knock it out, Rich. I'll, I'll date a chicken. I'll date a, ch I'll date a chicken. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I suppose I'm the energy guy on, on the Looney Hour, which is to say that I go, I prattle on and on about the Canadian um, energy market, um, the fact that oil is super useful, um, and that um, basically most of the negative projections um, are basically nuts. I usually try to get my guests to agree with me. <laughs> Put it on the off chance that I'm wrong. Can you just articulate maybe um, sort of your view more holistically about oil and then maybe touch on Canada? Am I wrong about oil? Uh, is it important? Is it not important? Where do you see it sort of going in the next five years? And or maybe something that we're not paying attention to in Canada that we really, really should be, if that's okay. Yeah, you bet. And I would say um, if you're familiar with our work, you'll know that we are um, bullish primary energy. We think energy is life. Um, we define our standard of living by the amount of energy we get to harness in order to impose order on our local environment. You know, right angles do not exist spontaneously in nature and left to their own devices, nature will take those right angles right back. And we have to constantly inject uh, an inflow of, of heat uh, into our lives in order to impose that order. And 
frankly speaking, I, I do think that this uh, happy talk about the elimination of fossil fuel use on any reasonable time scale is uh, is nonsense. Uh, it, it, this is uh, purely a luxury of the rich, which is why you see such talk only occurring in the developed nations of the Western world. Um, the global south, which last we checked, accounted for somewhere between five to six billion of all the planet of, of all the humans living on the planet, um, isn't really going to be too concerned about what occurs. Uh, in the climate decades in the future, they're more concerned about climbing the base of the pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And uh, to the extent that oil and natural gas and coal and uranium are the primary uh, energy sources that power the standard of living of all of the humans on the planet, um, some 85 to 90% of our energy comes from those sources, um, that to think that somehow we're gonna make a meaningful dent in that in, in a period measured in years, I just think is crazy. Uh, but nonetheless, this is the talk of the day. This is the momentum of politics. Uh, you can't ignore such things if you're an investor or you're an analyst. Uh, you have to be aware of them. But uh, 40 years from now, we'll be pumping uh, substantially more oil than we are today. Uh, we'll be drilling substantially more natural gas than we do today. I would dare say we will be mining for more coal and uranium than we are today. Um, and everything that happens between here and there is just the sort of standard noise of politics. What are your thoughts on, uh, you know, the, you hear all the time, these peak oil forecasts and particularly oftenly touted by the IEA. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, funny you should ask because on December 22nd, we published a piece titled, quote, peak cheap oil is a myth, which uh, ought to give you some indication of our views on the matter. I would say the IEA is just another politically captured organization that the progressive environmental left have, have managed to penetrate. Um, as we walk through in that piece, there are three main reasons why people are always um, claiming that the sky is falling when um, when they look at um, the last couple of years of oil production. Um, the first is that um, they massively underestimate the technical power of the fossil fuel companies that work in the energy sector. Um, I have spent 20 years uh, in the commodity sector. I'm a, I'm a PhD scientist by training. I led thousands of scientists around the world working on all manner of energy projects when I was an executive in commodity sector. And I can tell you that um, you might think of Google and Facebook and Apple as technology companies, but you should really be thinking of Exxon and Chevron and Saudi Aramco uh, as the true technology companies that do the dizzying array of work that make modern life possible. Uh, each day, scores of thousands of PhDs and engineers and uh, lab technicians and field workers um, go about the task of making everything we take for granted um, possible. And, and heaven forbid they ever I'd listen to these types of conversations and decide to go on strike because it wouldn't take very long for the rest of us, including everybody listening to this show, uh, to realize where the real power lies. Uh, and so um, the first thing that people do is they radically underestimate the deflationary impact of technological progress. Um, the second thing they do is they, un they, they fail to realize just how much of the quote unquote expensive nature of today's oil is due to politics, which are choices, which can be easily overturned, as we suspect, for example, Germany and dare we say, Justin Prudeau might soon find out. Um, and then last, but most importantly, um, people have a far too narrow definition of what oil is. Um, and we have a very expansive one, which we laid out in that piece, which is oil is any hydrocarbon that finds its way into a refinery. And when you have that as your lens and you look at the glut of natural gas liquids, for example, coming onto the market in the Permian Basin, um, and you look at the true production of oil, in the US, for example, which just crossed 20 million barrels a day, um, it, it, there's just no shortage of, of fossil fuels to be had. And, and the human endeavor 
which is a constant unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. We'll make sure that we continue to exploit those resources, um, politics be damned. How about um, there are a couple of things? Maybe first, just just briefly go back and explain to the listeners what peak oil means, because we, we all know our, ourselves here, but maybe maybe uh, be a bit more specific with that. But then I'd like to jump over to your your, your thoughts on how this negative view towards oil and, and and that gas, even uranium, how it's escalated so quickly across the West and specifically, you know, down different divides. And uh, as you say, you know, we, we are on different cycles and maybe five years from now, this is going to be swung back to the other side. And meanwhile, you know, the demand for energy, it, it keeps chugging along, right? It's, it's not going to decline at all. But maybe we just talk a little bit about that and then we'll you know, continue over to the next part of the conversation. So to the first part of your question, the definition of peak oil, which is a derivative of um, a famous geologist um, Hubbard uh, in the US back in the day, um, is sort of a backwards looking bottom up analysis of what is going on today, projected forward, which we believe is incorrect. Um, there's a, a huge amount of hydrocarbons under the surface of the earth, and we have barely scratched the surface of humankind's ability to identify, access, uh, exploit, uh, and otherwise take advantage of this amazing gift uh, of nature. And so um, every time we run into a bit of a flattening of production or perhaps oil becomes expensive for a variety of reasons, um, the, a, a unified objective of the far environmental left and frankly the oil companies is to uh, impart upon the minds of politicians and consumers and influencers that, uh, boy, peak cheap oil must be near because that then puts a premium on the price of oil. The oil companies like that because it pads their profits and the environmentalists like that because it tends to stoke panic amongst the population and, and serves as a uh, you know wind in the sail of the renewable energy movement. Uh, and so there's um, a strong desire to keep that myth, that narrative in the public discourse, and then we happen to think it's, it's uh, nonsense. Uh, and so um, I forget what the second part of your question was. Perhaps you could repeat it. Well, I just become so interested in the first answer. Maybe <laughs> I. <I've... laughs> no, the the next part of it, it actually ties into that, and you know the view that we you know we're just flooded or bombarded with consistently uh, mm. here in Canada is how bad oil is for us, and I'm just wondering your thoughts and views. Like, how did we get here? Because it wasn't this strong five years ago or, or ten years ago, and and and, and again, it, it's been rapidly increasing this view, and it's a very sharp end of the stick. And if you're not following in line, for example, here in Canada, we we you know we're getting a lot of carbon taxes applied to us. And guys, I think it's going up three times this year. I think that's what's happening, Rich, for for nat gas especially. Um, so we, but I'm just wondering, how did we get here? And do you see this sort of a sunset? for this view at some point, or is it going to continue? Yeah, so I would say, um, first of all, um, one should always be concerned about the environment and we would partition the need to be mindful of pollution from as being different from climate. Um, second, I would say that concerns about the climate are probably well-founded. Our view is that simply nobody's going to care enough to do anything about it. And so our time and energy is best spent on um, preparing for and reacting to negative consequences of um, uh, an elevated uh, global temperature, as opposed to trying to do our best to control what amounts to a complex nonlinear system. Um, and, and 
And so that's a very practical mindset um, with a, a human first origin, which says that like we're we're not going to preemptively rob the billions of people on the planet today from the primary energy they need to eke out a decent standard of living uh, in the name of something that might happen decades in the future. And even if it does happen, um, the, the cost of abatement is going to be far less than the the, the holistic cost of an attempt to preemptively uh, circumvent it. And so, but to your specific question is I would argue that the, if you divide the population into four segments, we, we, we wrote about this in a prior piece, sort of the hard left who thinks that the world's coming to an end in five years and fossil fuel companies are evil and their executives should be, you know, brought to the guillotine. And then there's the, the hard right who thinks the whole thing is just a giant hoax. And then the vast majority of people would fall in the spectrum between what we would call the, the soft left and the soft right. Um, and and the propagandists of the hard left have run circles around the energy companies. I mean, let's be totally honest. Um, uh, the, engine, the, the, the energy companies are filled with practical engineers with measuring tapes on their belts and, you know, who, who just understand intuitively that this is what has to happen for humanity to thrive. And they're honorable people who, you know, um, provide for their families and they go to work every day and, and they don't think about the critically important needs of politics and propaganda and, and shaping the public narrative, whereas the, the members of the, sort of the hard left have perfected the craft. They've infiltrated government all the way up to your environment minister. Um, the, the, the U.S. nuclear energy um, uh, regulatory body is, is completely um, taken over by um, such radicals, and, and we would have argued in a piece that uh, that, that, or, that entity needs to be completely you know, um, taken apart and started over. Um, the, the, we have lost, when I say we, I mean, this is the practical scientific engineering, human first uh, pro-energy crowd have have for too long seeded the political propaganda battlefield and, and are suffering accordingly. Now, we would say that uh, we're beginning to see amongst the soft left a realization that the, um, the big lie they've been sold is, is becoming apparent. And that big lie, which is really important, and we should talk about it, the big lie is that we can make meaningful improvements to the climate arc of the planet with next to no sacrifices to our daily living or our standard of living. And the moment you start to impose those real sacrifices, which have been hidden um, as part of the propaganda narrative, you see a revolt amongst the soft left and they quickly join the soft right. And we're seeing this political wave sweep the Western nations uh, as these sacrifices are, are becoming more apparent. And Richard, it seems like you're anxious to jump in, so I'll stop there. No, I just was just so thankful that someone other than me has just been railing on this. I mean, you did it in a brilliantly and much better articulated way than I could have ever had said, so thank you. But I mean, that's for me one of the real, you said big lie, I've used that exact terminology before, this idea that we can just extract ourselves from um, fossil fuels in a painless way, I think is is really profound. And I think people who genuinely care about the emancipation of the working class have sort of forgotten this. Um, what, what would you say to some people who say, you know, green energy policy is actually sort of the greatest gift to these oil companies um, in, in sort of cynical, you know, shareholder value kind of way? Is that is that a fair sort of characterization of what's been going on? Uh, I would say uh, to a certain extent, absolutely. And And let's be honest. The money and power behind the anti-nuclear movement in the 50s and 60s was a collaboration between the sort of Malthusian environmental radicalists and the fossil fuel sector. Um, and that's a dirty history that the industry probably regrets today. Um, and we would say we're not apologists for the fossil fuel sector. Um, we 
we see all manner of, of poor behavior, which then gets leveraged by the propagandists uh, to maximum effect. Um, they would do well uh, to um, to improve um, um, their pollution controls and and their frankly that the articulation of their value proposition. And I think at COP twenty eight, which is this uh, this annual uh, carbon pilgrimage uh, that's just wrapped up in uh, the the United Arab Emirates, um, I think for the first time you saw the fossil fuel sector and the big food industries show up in in huge numbers and um, much to the chagrin of the environmentalists and and we could talk more about that but it it really is i think time for the adults to take back charge of the steering wheel and and we're seeing you know what we had called in a earlier piece uh, green shoots of logic um, we're starting to see um, people have an adult conversation about nuclear energy like you had with uh, dr chris kiefer uh, we're seeing even trudeau throwing his support behind nuclear power we're seeing biden uh, here in the U.S. and and progressive governors as uh, as far to the left as um, you know uh, the governor of Michigan characterize um, the nuclear power as clean and so the the there's only so far you can stretch the rubber band of risking people's standard of living in the West before you start to see change in the polls. I think the Canadian polls are indicating a, perhaps a desire for change. I think you see in Germany a far more rightward lean. They've gone through far more difficulties than Canada. You know Canada is one of the most resource blessed, energy abundant countries in the world. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the assets per capita of the typical Canadian is off the charts, rivaled only really by Australia uh, and perhaps Russia. You know, truly the, the era of Trudeau is, is a luxury of excess and wealth. And if things ever got serious enough, we suspect such uh, silliness would be uh, waved to the side and replaced with people far more competent. So I want to take the conversation to sort of the alternative energy sector. Uh, we can lump nuclear into that, but uh, before we go there, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, I know you've written quite a bit on, um, you know, emissions, right? You've, people talk about emissions. What about burning, you know, the technology that we're creating in the fossil fuel industry, particularly here in say Alberta um, and how that plays a role in, in limiting, you know, CO2 emissions moving forward. Um, because like I said, I know you've written quite a bit about uh, anti-fossil fuels. It seems no longer the conversation is not even about the emissions. It's just about fossil fuels. Yeah. So we're seeing a bit of a semantic shift amongst the propagandists on the left. Um, it's no longer about the emissions from the burning of fossil fuels. As you indicated, it is now just the burning of fossil fuels. And why is that? Well, the industry has been challenged and they have um, begun to deliver in the form of carbon capture and sequestration and and other even carbon negative technologies and they they correctly view the climate agenda as an as at least a political existential threat to their way of business and have invested accordingly and responded to what they thought the needs were uh, as they were being articulated over the prior decades and now that carbon capture and sequestration is on the cusp of um, of wide industrial deployment, like Lucy with the football, we see the left um, subtly moving the goalposts and demanding Al Gore and his crowd, um, demanding that all burning of fossil fuels cease regardless of the emissions, which is a rather curious thing. And then we would say, kind of gives the game up uh, as to what this is truly all about. Um, and so, um, for example, in the piece that we wrote about um, carbon negative technologies called Bury the Lead, um, we we imagine we have found this great headline in the Financial Times, which is an otherwise quite respectable newspaper that we still read and subscribe to. 
uh, EU ministers criticized OPEC over attempts to switch emphasis to emissions. As, like, wasn't this always about emissions? It, it's, it's truly bizarre. Uh, but it is what it is. It, it, we think it unmasks the, the sort of the, the Malthusian objectives of the hardcore uh, environmental left. Uh, but that's a conversation perhaps for another day. Well, actually, just something that you've mentioned, I've mentioned it before, and you've mentioned it a bunch of times in your notes. And, and I and I know maybe, sorry, Steve, but I have to ask this question, which is, you know, you mentioned like, you know, stopping the use, the use of fossil fuels would rob billions of people for the opportunity to improve their livelihoods, even just a little bit. We've mentioned that before on the podcast, too. But then you, oh, you've mentioned the word Malthus or Malthusian twice, and it's something I know you've written about a lot. Why do you think that Malthusian view, that anti-human view is so pervasive. Why can't it die? He's been wrong for 200 years. What's keeping that view alive? And maybe if you just quickly describe what that is and then maybe articulate why you think it, that argument just won't go away. The Malthusian view of the world, which was articulated in the 1800s and as you have indicated, has been proven wrong at every measurable opportunity, is that the growth of humans on the planet is on the verge of overrunning the integrated resource capacity of the planet's potential to service the needs of those humans. And so as a consequence of that, the intellectual uh, next step in that belief, if you take that foundational assumption as an axiom, is that we need far less humans on the planet. Now, we should say up front, the vast majority of run-of-the-mill, soft-left environmentalists are not Malthusian. They've been told the big lie. Um, our view is that, and it's pretty incontrovertible if you look at the historical records, which we have done in several of our pieces, that the founding members of the Sierra Club and Greenpeace and much of the big money behind the modern environmental movement was born out of a, frankly, a terribly ugly history of eugenics and, and Malthusian uh, thinking. And they, their belief is that there should be far fewer people on the planet. And if you read the source documents and the New York Times in the 50s and 60s, you'll see that it is their view that it is certainly not people that look like them uh, who should be the first to go. Um, and they've, of course, tried to wipe, you know, uh, paper over this history and, and to try to um, bury it. And they're certainly ashamed of it today because let's just say uh, some of the propaganda pamphlets and books that were written at the time don't age very well. Um, and, and so, but that's when you take that, the origin of the modern environmental movement with the undeniable and natural consequences of the implementation of the policies they're they're pushing, it's hard to dismiss the Malthusian origins of this movement as being uh, nothing but ever present today. Um, it is just undeniable that if we if we banned the burning of fossil fuels, that we couldn't make fertilizer, we couldn't grow enough food, and billions of people would starve. Um, they know that, so that, but they can't run on a policy of billions of people starving. Um, and so they run on a policy of saving the planet. So speaking of burning of fossil fuels, uh, we just, you know, about a week ago, we had, we had a discussion on the podcast as well, but Canada has recently introduced legislation uh, to mandate basically uh, net or zero emission vehicles uh, across the net nation uh, by 2035. And I think it's by over the next, what is it, Reg, over the next five or six years, it's like 60% of new yeah, car sales. six years. Uh, and, and so we, we do question if you have any understanding of the realities or the abilities of, of this to actually transpire, um, you know, I know you've written quite a bit around the ability to source precious metals for all these, you know, EV cars. Is this, is this reality? Yeah. 
So not just precious metals, but even the, the green metals, so-called green metals, nickel, lithium, copper, and so on. Look, I, having spent uh, a fair amount of time in Canada, uh, even in the winter, I can assure you that uh, electric vehicles are wholly impractical for the vast majority of Canadians, especially the subset of those who don't live in downtown Toronto, um, for example. Um, and I suspect, we suspect, we predict that um, the unworkability of uh, a plan that could only have been conceived by a committee that has never left an Excel spreadsheet, um, you know, um, that this will all be overturned uh, in the next government as, as it becomes wholly unworkable. Um, and so we have similar, you know, mandates um, being tossed about here in the U.S. Um, and wherever these deadlines are approached around the world, they magically get delayed, much to the chagrin uh, of, of those who are hoping that uh, somehow just waving a pen, a political pen, can change the realities of physics. Um, there's nothing that beats a diesel engine out west, and the, nobody driving a diesel truck today in Alberta or Saskatchewan or Manitoba or British Columbia uh, or in rural Ontario is going to be turning in their diesel trucks for uh, for a cyber truck anytime soon. I mean, let's be honest. No, I think that's a it's you know that that certainly jibes with our view there as well. Uh, I think even just the infrastructure alone, right? So if we were to say, okay, so now if you were to, to put this forward, I mean, how how large of a role does does nuclear energy have to play here? I know Look. we've had our mutual friend. Dr. Chris Kiefer on the show uh, discussed some of that, but what are your thoughts on Canada's role uh, as pertains to nuclear energy here moving forward? So just to round up the last conversation before we pivot to nuclear, you know, as my engineering friends would say, it only takes one zero in a geometric mean to know what the answer is. Um, charging infrastructure, grid capacity, transformer shortages, battery material shortages, um, consumer, um, you know, riots, um, any one of these things would be the death knell of this silly policy, and we suspect a combination of all of them um, will quickly come to the fore um, before we get too far down this silliness. Um, and so, you know, this, this is um, makes for clicks and interesting headlines, but in the reality, as we have long said, in the battle between um, platitudes and physics, physics is uh, still undefeated. Um, oh, I like to, that. <laughs> to, to, to your question on nuclear, I do think Canada is a leader in this regard. I think um, I would applaud Justin Trudeau for his about face on the issue. I think there is no path to any meaningful decarbonization, assuming that is a worthy objective that does not squarely run through the heart of nuclear energy. Um, it's the highest energy density, safest, most reliable form of electricity and industrial grade heat now with the latest generation of uh, reactor designs. And if we're serious about decarbonizing the economy, then you can't be opposed to nuclear. And by extension, if you're opposed to nuclear, then you're wholly unserious about decarbonizing the economy. Um, and so this is um, the way it will be. The path from here to there is up to the radical environmental left. But uh, I, on this one, I think it's safe to say, uh, you know, we're in the fourth quarter and it's 42 to seven for the nuclear side. Like this game is lost. They're just going to have to tip their hat. Um, a small cadre of very effective influencers on modern social media have played a significant and outsized role in making this happen. And Dr. Chris Kiefer is certainly among them. Um, but in the end, if you have physics on your side, you don't have to be all that good uh, at propaganda to ultimately win. It's just a matter of how quickly you win. Um, and so, you know, the can-do reactors, uh, fascinating and outstanding piece of technology. Canadians should be proud. The world is is buying it from Canada. It's good jobs. It's It's good export capacity. It's good technology. The U.S. will get its act together on enrichment for the latest reactor designs. Um, just a little tidbit on nuclear power and carbon emissions. Um, this might come as a surprise to some of your listeners, but um, 
the amount of carbon emissions the world produces in the generation of industrial grade steam is greater than the combined total of emissions that arise from our transportation and aviation sectors. And all this talk about electric vehicles and nobody's talking about industrial grade steam, something as simple and critically needed as that. Can you explain and, uh, that? Sorry, can you yeah. explain what industrial grade steam is, please? Sorry. So if you if you have a brownsfield site, a heavy manufacturing site, you need two things. You need uh, reliable electricity and you need um, steam to perform chemical reactions and to heat things up um, and to perform all manner of transformations. I think about what happens in a steel mill, for example, or a cement factory. Uh, very little of the technology that makes our economy work happens at room temperature and, it, and engineers need um, the basics of, of high-grade steam and electricity to do their, their incredible work. And we burn an enormous amount of coal and natural gas um, to create steam. And uh, nuclear power, it, it, at least the fourth generation designs and beyond, are, are more than capable of producing pretty good industrial-grade steam that, that, that could abate a fair bit of that technology. We, we wrote about this in a piece called Gaining Steam, about a pretty interesting project between the Dow and, and a nuclear-powered startup. Um, and the nice part about SMR technology, small modular reactor, is you can install these in existing brownfield sites. The radius of concern, if there were to be an incident, is quite small for such SMRs. And, and the security at these Brownsfield sites is already pretty high. Uh, and so if we're going to get serious about abating emissions, that's one example. Another could be you know, leveraging the naval nuclear technology that exists in the US submarine fleet for um, taking uh, out all of the emissions that our large cargo ships and container ships um, pollute the atmosphere with. And they tend to burn the dirtiest of, of the oil with high sulfur content. And so that's a very rich, target-rich environment that micro uh, nuclear reactors could certainly abate. Um, if we're serious about it, there are meaningful ways to bend the arc of our carbon emissions, and all of them practically go through nuclear. Can I ask you just a question? So um, I have a couple of some really smart buddies who I think you know, sadly have been co-opted by this view that renewables, given sufficient time, and that time horizon is actually quite short for, in their estimation, you know, will be able to supplant all this fossil fuel needs that we have i think our paul our political you know our our dear leader shares that view uh, can you just articulate why that might not be possible um in any sort of reasonable time frame that has been sort of sold to us yeah well it's that's i would say it's practically impossible uh, for a variety of reasons one um renewables provide intermittent electricity period and the world needs a lot more than uh, electricity, and it needs when it does need that electricity, it needs it um, immediately. You know, the, 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 the successful operation of a modern electricity grid requires a perfect matching of supply and demand. And uh, wind and solar, even with battery backup, do a terrible job of providing what's known as dispatchable electricity. Um, whereas at a coal plant, you could just shove more coal and you get more electricity. Um, and coal is always on. Nuclear is always on. Um, as long as you have the natural gas and some storage on site, natural gas has is, is got a very high capacity factor. Um, let me ask you a question. What do you think the, the um, capacity factor of a solar array in Alberta is in December? It, it's practically zero. So what are we to do between November and March if you live in Alberta? And, and it's not like your energy needs go down in the winter. They go up in the winter. Um, Germany goes through uh, weeks of doldrums where the, the sun doesn't hardly ever shine and the wind doesn't blow. An infinite amount of wind and solar installed is not going to come anywhere close to meeting the needs of the Germans during the winter. Uh, neither their residential heating needs 
their home electricity needs, nor their industrial uh, requirements as well in both steam and, and electricity. Um, our electricity use, which is often convoluted with the word energy uh, by people who believe that we can just install wind and solar and solve all our problems, uh, electricity is but a fraction of our total energy needs. And, can you explain that? Sorry, can you explain that? Yeah, sure. So um, we wrote a piece called Michigan's Waterloo, where um, the governor in Michigan, uh, Whitner, um, just passed a quote, 100% clean energy bill. And in that piece, we showed what's known as a, a Sankey diagram, which shows the flow of basically the flow of calories across Michigan's entire economy. And electricity generation is just one small part of the total energy consumption of the state of Michigan. Um, you burn natural gas to produce heat, to make steam. You, you burn um, gasoline inside of our cars. Um, our grid has limited capacity. So like uh, replacing all of that energy use uh, that, that gasoline, refined gasoline is currently providing with the grid would require a massive build of the grid that nobody is contemplating or paying for or even believes is possible. Um, so in, in Michigan, which is a very cold climate, um, something like 35% of the total BTUs consumed in their energy grid is, is used to make electricity and the rest of it is used for all the other purposes I've just described. And so we can talk about 100% clean energy and in reality what you mean is clean electricity. And then when you drill down on the definition of clean electricity, it includes nuclear, thankfully, but also includes uh, natural gas with carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, and so really, you're not talking about um, replacing but 10 to 15% of the fossil fuels that are being burned uh, in the state of Michigan with this quote unquote 100% clean energy bill. So this gets back to the propaganda. It sounds great. Um, the type of belief that you articulated is one held by uh, somebody who is only superficially familiar with the physics of how the world actually works. <laughs> and um, and it, it is oh it is a luxury to have such um, shallow beliefs um, because you live in a in a country where you're never faced with the visceral day to day challenge of meeting your own energy needs directly. Um, nobody in the global south um, has any confusion about what they need to do to quote unquote develop. And this is why you're seeing uh, in 2023. The world burned more coal than it has ever burned. Yeah, we got that. I got that one a couple weeks ago. <laughs> Sorry, Keith. Yeah, yeah but just a, you know, if when people hear this conversation, you know, I, I love hearing it, and you know, I know the story as well. I just find it very hard to believe or, or difficult to understand how policymakers who've gone all in on trying to convert the world to this, you know, renewable energy and, and so forth, they don't know this story as well. Who is advising them? Again, I just can't piece this together and understand how very important decision makers who have access to so much, so many great advisors to suggest which direction they should go with it. Because if they heard this, you think they would say, wait a second, we're, we're not going about this the right way. Instead, it's just being jammed down everyone's throats. Like, so what, 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 what isn't happening? Where's the message not getting communicated to them? You know, we, we confront this question all the time. Is it uh, ignorance or malice? And um, we're in, in the ignorance camp. And, and this is from direct personal experience. So um, I remember when I was climbing the corporate ladder, 
I had this vision of the boardroom. Some room somewhere behind some very thick doors that I've never been behind where all the really smart people exist that must know what's really going on and must have a deep understanding of what's occurring. And I remember the hallowing disappointment that I felt the first time I came face to face with a Fortune 50 board of directors. Um, they are as empty and as shallow and as incompetent, um, more so even than you could believe. And, and until proven otherwise, we're in the ignorance camp. We do think that um, our political leaders have been sold a bill of goods from people who should know better, but they genuinely believe. Like when I hear Justin Trudeau talk, I don't think I'm hearing a liar. I think I'm hearing somebody who genuinely believes what he says. I just don't think he knows any better. And how, how could he? What, what are his engineering chops? Uh, where did he go get his engineering degree? Um, he, he, how could he know what he's talking about? He's been told something by skilled propagandists, has gone all in. And by the way, um, it's very difficult to admit you've been fooled. And um, the progressive environmental left occupies a huge part of the, the, the most engaged components of his political base. And so at this point, having gone this far down the tracks, it would be political suicide for him to pull on the brakes, which is why we give him full credit for his attempt to do so on nuclear power. And in order to do that, he had to steer down some of the loudest voices uh, in Canada, um, some of whom Chris Kiefer has debated directly. But it's very, very difficult to do that. And, and I do think over time, with conversations like this and you know, uh, more and more people, look, we have hundreds and hundreds of .gov emails addresses in our, in our subscriber base. We get um, uh, in, inquiries from the staffers of congressmen and uh, congresspeople and, and senators um, all the time. Um, and I do think that the, the practical engineering aspects, uh, the population in our society has done a poor job on the propaganda and we're just now getting engaged. And I, and I, and I do think, for example, Doomberg wouldn't be a thing uh, if this inefficiency in the market doesn't exist. What we bring to the conversation, for example, is the industrial view to these questions. Almost all executives from industry are handcuffed from speaking publicly by their public affairs teams, by their investor relations teams, by their desire to not be quote unquote canceled and, and all of this other stuff. And so if you look across the energy debate, um, it is occupied by predominantly professors um, and, and people who have only spent their lives in politics. There's none of the executives in, in the tar sands or the oil sands of Alberta uh, are free to engage in the political discourse in the way that we have. And so to the extent that that inefficiency existed in the market, we've been thrilled to occupy it. Just quickly, how do you explain Angela Merkel? <laughs> She's a PhD in physics, chem chem yeah. chemical physics. But I know, I don't, uh, yeah, just quickly, oh, sorry. There's, there's the, the history of the German anti-nuclear movement and who funded it is uh, fascinating. And when it is eventually written, I think it will be a pretty epic scandal. Okay, um, cool. <laughs> so you just have to look at who benefited the most uh, until very recently, which was, of course, Russian gas interests um, to draw the straight line from uh, um, who paid who to do what uh, okay, in that cool. time frame. So speaking you know, of... I, go ahead, yeah, Keith. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, missed your, I missed your presentation at COP28. I couldn't find it. How, did, <laughs> how was it received? Was it well-liked? Interestingly... Um, we did receive an invite to go. No to, way. Cool. The, but um, but once the war broke out in the Middle East, I'm a bit of a prepper. And I thought to myself, boy, if, if I got rubbed out um, in the middle of a hot war in the Middle East at a climate change meeting of all places, I could never. I mean, how could I 
forgive yourself. How can I do that to my family? And so um, we decided to, to, to politely decline the invitation. We did, however, for our pro tier, we have a, um, a premium tier for Doomberg, put together a presentation on our thoughts uh, on the conference, which uh, was humorously titled Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda, because um, we were just amazed at the uh, at the semantics debate over uh, could or should or um, you know phasing out and, and so on, like these words on a piece of paper have any influence on what people will actually do in the, in the years and decades ahead. So just to, as we get close to wrapping this up, you know, you mentioned the the .gov addresses following you, and and this large reason why we do this as well. Um, you know, we certainly have quite a few uh, politicians uh, that tune into the show regularly. That you know, will reach out at times, and so I think it's important to have the dialogue that we're having today to hopefully shape that conversation moving forward. But if you were, I just want to play a hypothetical. If you were hypothetically Prime Minister of Canada, or maybe the you know, the Energy Minister of Canada. What would you do? What What do you think is is again? I want you to sort of play that role of of energy minister here. You've got the shots. Um, you know, politics aside, what are you What are you doing here for Canada? Well, it's funny because in October we published for our pro tier presentation called King Doomberg, a comprehensive national energy strategy. Now this was directed towards the U.S., but I think it applies um, to Canada as well. And so, um, as I, as I pull that strategy up, I'm, I can give you. Um, you know, some of the key highlights, but at, at the, at the highest level, um, if we were King, uh, the first thing that we would do is that we would, um, we would make sure that we were balancing the needs of the planet and humans. And so the, that immediately leads to the following focus. We need to focus on the net energy produced by a country because that defines its standard of living. It's an investment in economic robustness, and it is a, frankly, a national security issue. Um, and, and then we would balance that against the needs of the environment. And so we, uh, in this piece, we developed what we call the ultimate trade-off equation, which is our net energy produced in the numerator divided by the sum of our pollution plus CO2 emissions. And then we would have intelligent conversations about the following word, which is missing from the debate. And that word is trade-off. So there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs period. So if we're going to implement this policy, what are the pros and what are the cons? And let's have an intelligent adult debate about how much human flourishing are we willing to trade off in order to alleviate how much pollution or how many carbon emissions and so on. And when you do that, and then you focus on um, energy return on energy invested, because energy density is a primary driver of the engineer's ability to convert embodied energy and to improve standard of livings. Um, that is sort of the, the grand um, prism through which King Doomberg would alter Canada's energy policy. Fundamentally, do you think that the pe- the reason that Canada is so garbled in its energy policy, I, I've reminded our listeners that if with, without 4% of GDP, you know, our current account balance would be in shambles. We're the fourth largest producer of oil, like the you know seventh or eighth, whatever largest producer of natural gas, blah, 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 on and on and on. I've tried very hard to re- reiterate that point. Is it because they just don't feel any of the pain from any of these? Is it just clear, like a classic, simple agent principle problem that you think that's going on here up here? Yeah, look, if, if, if you scan across Canada, um, and, and for a variety of reasons, I happen to know it pretty well. You, let's look at Quebec. It's easy for Quebec to be sort of anti-fossil fuels, especially as it pertains to the grid, because they get all their electricity from hydro. 
they they have dammed so many of their rivers that they export an enormous amount of electricity to New York, who gets to pretend like they don't need fossil fuels because they're heavily reliant on, you know, all of the destruction to nature that has occurred in Quebec um, as as Hydro Quebec has dammed up all the rivers. Uh, that's fine. That's a trade off. Let's be clear. Quebec has a very green grid, and um, and if they so chose, they could probably implement um, electrification of their transportation sector with relative ease, with the installation of a few more nuclear reactors and so on. Um, let's go West Ontario, same deal. Um, hydro and nuclear provide the vast majority of the electricity of Ontario's grid, which is why companies from around the world um, like to um, build energy intense assets there, like the big battery facility that Volkswagen announced, I think, last year. Um, you move out west, of course, uh, when you have an abundance of natural gas and oil. Well, of course, Saskatchewan and Alberta and so on um, would be keen to exploit those. Um, and so when I look at the actual policies at the provincial level that are being rolled out, they're, they're pretty sensible. Um, you know, I this is, again, Canada is amongst the richest countries in the world. Um, if we wrote in a piece um, recently uh, about the Monroe Doctrine and and the amazing resource base in Latin America, and, and we did a comparison between Venezuela and Canada. And then if you look at the oil sands in Alberta, very similar resource base, very similar resource characteristic to what's going on in Venezuela. And in um, you know, and in that piece, we we showed a chart of the production of oil in Canada compared to the production of oil in, in Venezuela, and it's truly stark, truly sad. Um, um, to see what's happened in Venezuela and compare that to the economic trajectory of Canada. Um, and if you want to look and to see uh, what would happen to Canada if if these policies were implemented, go go down to Venezuela and spend a few days and see whether that's the life that you want to, to have locally. The piece was called the, the New World's Oil uh, for anybody interested to look it up. Um, and so, you know, it, Canada's rich. Canada has outstanding institutions. Canada has amazing universities. Canada has an amazing highway system. Canada has an amazing river system. Canada has a culture uh, based on respect for others, uh, welcoming of immigrants, welcoming of diversity. All those things are to be lauded. And um, start to take away the, the energy underpinnings and foundations of that society, uh, then you're going to start to run into challenges. And so, you know, in the long run, uh, we would be very bullish Canada. Uh, we think the institutions of Canada can survive this um, dabbling um, with what we would consider rather insane policies. Uh, and in the long run, um, if you asked us uh, you know, to, to throw a dart at the world map and pick a few places we'd want to live in 2050, Canada would be high on the list. I think that's uh, encouraging to hear and, and probably a great place to wrap it up. I don't know, Keith, Rich, if you have any final questions, but obviously, Doomberg, want to be respectful of your time. It's been uh, incredibly insightful. I just want to say thanks as always um that was awesome it was yeah. a lot of fun thank you thank you very much and why don't we schedule this again for uh maybe later on in, in the year and uh we'll get to see how all the trends are, are continuing hey, this uh, was a great conversation our, our listeners are going to love this one we'll get a lot of uh, great <laughs> feedback on it hey, look i'm always happy to sing for my supper uh, i'll leave you with the uh tiny commercial if you enjoyed this conversation head over to doomberg.substack.com where we are 100 percent subscribers supported we don't take ads or sponsorships and then as we like to say there's nothing wrong with those business models but given how provocative we try to be on uh, topics as important as these we felt it would be best to be uh, supported by our readers and uh, it's a real pleasure uh, gentlemen i um, hope you have a, a wonderful start to 2024 uh, and happy to come back anytime that you'll have me
Yeah, thanks so much. And like I said, I subscribe to it personally. You guys uh, do tremendous work and I highly encourage all our listeners to go check that out. We'll leave a link in the show notes where they can do that. Doomberg, once again, thank you so much. Fantastic interview there. Hopefully uh, our listeners, you know, garnered some value and insight out of that. Um, like I said, highly encourage everybody to check out uh, the Doomberg Substack and go and subscribe to that. But uh, hopefully we'll have them on again. Um, like I said, very, very insightful and just provides a different lens on uh, the whole energy transition in particular. So, Well, I'm actually hungrier than I was before. So uh, you're going to keep rolling with that one, eh? I know it's it's a good one, but I am. I didn't have any lunch. I forgot about that. So let's jump no, though. No back lemon into loaf some... today, folks. Yeah. <laughs> New Year's resolution. No lemon loaf during the first seven days. Then we'll jump on. But um, yeah, you know, decent, you know, Keith, kind of curious, we've got a you know, lot shaping up here for the new year. It's still pretty early. People are still on vacation. Um, kind of curious how markets are starting to shape up. I mean, one of the ones we're looking at, uh, of course, here in Canada is the housing market. Um, you know, there was a, it's funny, Rich, how you can kind of skew, uh, you know, data or headlines. You know, we were talking about journalism earlier. Um, That's my job. <laughs> you know, but... <laughs> I was looking at the uh, the Bloomberg headline today. And so the Bloomberg headline today says, quote, Toronto home sales surged the most in eight months as buyers took advantage of a slight dip in borrowing costs. Um, and then there's another article headline that came out today saying Toronto home sales were the lowest in 23 years. Um for the calendar year of 2023. So it's like, well, which one is it? Like if you're like a, you know, a consumer out there, you're probably a little bit confused. And so basically to kind of like dive through that noise, uh, home sales rose 21% on a seasonally adjusted basis. So, you know, I guess home sales are sort of picking up, but if you look, if you zoom out further, uh, it was an overall incredibly weak year, 23 year low for home sales in the GTA. Which, you know, again, you think about that, I mean, that's worse than, you know, 2012, worse than the pandemic year. It's worse than, you know, 08, 09. Uh, so really tough times in the GTA. You know, here in Vancouver, uh, it was definitely not quite as bad. We were well below long-term averages, but it was like the fifth worst in 20 years. So like, you know, weak, but not horrendous. Uh, but I think ultimately, you know, if I'm the Bank of Canada, I'm looking at it and saying, holy smokes, like 23-year low in you know our largest major metro they should cut rates steve cut them right to the bone <laughs> no that's a terrible idea uh well i mean it certainly you know cues up the the question of when rate cuts are coming obviously we'll be keeping an eye on the bond market moving forward here but keith is there anything in particular that you're seeing in the early days here of the new year in terms of you know equity markets bond markets yeah, I mean it, it is. I mean, traded. people. Yeah, I mean, usually at year end, you know, during December, especially the last two weeks, where the holiday weeks, it's pretty thin volumes in trading. And if there's nothing happening, the world, you know, markets will just continue to go in the same direction where they started. Uh, but it's funny because back in December, which was no, this, that was last year, guys, which was five days ago. Rich, come on. What dun, dun, dun. <laughs> five days <laughs> ago it. for last year? I know. Oh, I want to get to do this once, but you know, back then the uh, you know bad news was considered good news because bad news meant the central banks would have to cut rates, and if you cut rates, you know, risky markets go up again. Everyone makes money, 
And, um, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, people made money in the last month, especially it was good. But, you know, a lot of the people I chat with, you know, we all agree that, hey, you know, we, we should hit, you know, the New Year's hangover, you know, when, when markets reopen here in early in the first week of January, sort of figure out, you know, what is really happening. And uh, I know we'll go into some of the data here right now, but, you know, it's only a day three, I guess, with the trading day and already equities are rolling over. You know, bond yields are starting to go higher again. So we're getting back into this mode where, hey, it, people are taking profits off the table from December. And, um, you know, a lot of different models we look at, you know, maybe it won't happen, but there, there's, you know, markets are looking a bit toppy here at, at this point. You know, we, we won't suggest a number where, where we could move lower, but um, there, there's a lot of concern right now. So now we are diving right back into the, the data. So after going from, you know, bad news is good news, now we could start going to that market period where, you know, bad news is bad news, or even, you know, good news is bad news. Oh, God. It's all <laughs> yeah, it's all focused on the, you know, what's expect for rate cuts coming up. And, uh, you know, and then you overlay that with what's happening with the geopolit geopolitical world and, you know, the election world coming up. You know, it's it, it could be a, a messy one, guys. It's gonna be a bumpy road, eh? That election stuff is yeah. is really fascinating. I, I think with the with the American election coming up, and like everyone has, they've already decided who's good and who's bad and who isn't, and all that stuff. But you know, I just suggest just step back and enjoy this for the spectacle that it's going to be, because <laughs> it is going to be outrageous. We talked about mainstream media earlier and Disney and TV and everything. This is real life. And my God, it's only the first week of January and it's already started. Uh, you know, wait till we get into the, uh, is it the October surprise that happens every, every cycle? Economic when, cycle or? No, for the political politicals. cycle. Oh. Yeah. You know, you know, the, the, you know, the election is always in November, but it's always like an October surprise. Like one of the yeah. sides keeps something back and they release it like literally weeks before. No. And, uh, <laughs> what yeah. could they possibly have released? <laughs> I, well, who knows? But the one thing I would just suggest, there's some great, I mean, I'm not sure if we're allowed to say this, but there's some great betting websites. Um, so, you know, markets are basically a one, a way of betting. This is true for stocks and bonds and currencies or whatever. Um, and you effectively can derive a probability distribution of those things. So some of the people listening may not know, but there's some great websites where you can, I wouldn't encourage actually placing a bet on who do you think is going to win the primary or the election or your particular favorite state or governor race, but it's really cool to watch sort of how the, the uh, those, um, those probability makers. Yeah. The odds makers for a particular uh president or whatever it is this is by the way odds these odds um odds makers on particular presidents or prime ministers is, is quite old um if you read you know the 80 days around the sun have you ever read that book they actually talk about that so like he actually puts a bet on whether or not he can go around the days uh, around the world in 80 days or whatever it is um and in that book they actually talk about who's running for prime minister and who's what what's the what are the odds that person's going to get what? um I mean, anyway, the outcome so that happens in the U.S. is going to be really interesting to see how it, you can see it already sort of shaping up our yeah. politics here in Canada, yeah, right? I mean, sure. I know like the, the liberals obviously seeing their drop in polling is they're, they're, the new angle on the marketing side is is to sort of 
fear monger fear monger around uh, mag uh, make America great again. You know, this is coming to Canada. You need to not vote for these guys. So it's interesting to see, right? I mean, if if hypothetically, uh, you know, Trump was to get back in, you know, how much that would uh, stir up markets here in Canada. But again, I you know, let's keep we'll keep the politics out of it for now. But I think it's going to be like Keith said, it'll be an interesting spectacle for 2024. But It'll Speaking also be that, interesting. It'll also be interesting how the Middle East and the escalation that we've been seeing in the Middle East affects that. Um, yeah, what are you seeing there? Like, obviously, the, the you know the the Red Sea stuff is is kind of uh, you know ramping up, and um, well, yeah, like know. I'm sure we touched on, like I'm sure we touched on with uh, with um, with uh, Doomberg. You know, the, the Red Sea is a really important. Um, highway basically for trade and goods i mean depending on who you ask it's between eight and 15 percent of global trade um and the key thing um is if you're gonna skip the red sea it takes an extra 10 days basically to go around the cape of good hope which is in the bottom of uh africa and so you know and hope is never a good strategy (laughs) rich you're such that's such a bad joke, my God. Anyways, so you know, from from Singapore, which is and and around, so that you know, so Asia, you got Suez Canal, you got Africa. Obviously, this is not a history class, but it's important to know, like you know, from Singapore to Rotterdam, which is two vital ports. Um, it's around um, eleven hundred uh, nautical miles, twelve hundred nautical miles. It's a thirty-six day trip, obviously depending on what you're carrying and how big your boat is, etc. And through the Suez Canal, it's eighty-five hundred nautical miles and a twenty-six day trip. Again, depending on your boat size and what you're carrying, etc. Larger boats and this go faster, by the way, for people who are curious about that. Um, and so, you know, so that's what a thirty percent or forty percent increase in prices. And so, there's loads and loads of knock-on effects and what's going on in Iran. You know, um, and another one in in Iraq that was a bombing there, and so all these things are going to have impacts on trade, producer price indices, um, export markets, natural gas. We know we've seen the legacy of that in 2021. So all this kind of stuff's moving around, and that's going to have a knock on effect on the politics, of course, but also clearly markets and interest rates. And interest rates. Thank you. That was the obvious next step. Excuse me. Well, which is every Canadian, right, is all getting all hyped up about rates coming down. And that's everyone's forecasting this. And all the realtors are putting out their TikTok videos and saying, you know, you got to buy now or you'll never get back in. Uh, and so, again, I think this is where it becomes incredibly tricky, especially, you know, I think in this election year to, to really have a strong view on the direction of rates. Um in, in over the next three, six, 12 months. Right. So anyways, it'll, it'll be interesting, but what else we got? Uh, I think the, the big one here, again, we're recording on Thursdays as Keith always likes to say, but we've got uh, what non-farm payrolls coming out tomorrow here on Friday. Yep. Uh, what, what do you stack up as the importance there? Oh, is that me? Well, let's check it. Let's see what's expected. First of all, um, I think it's what's expected is 168, which is actually quite low. So last month it was 199. I remember every single month they do some revisions, either one or two months or they combine them or whatever. Um, the ADP numbers came out today, which people sort of discount, I think, more and more because they sort of are a follower, not a leader. Um, I think what's that, I mean, I think I expect sort of a disappointing number, but the problem is, is there's so many sort of cross currents in the U.S. economy as far as, you know, um, there's, there's some, as far as like, imp, there's some good impulses, there's some bad impulses, you know, the housing um, continues to be really strong. N- non-residential um, um, construction employment continues to perk up. The house prices are going up because there's very little inventory 
real consumption is relatively strong. Credit growth is really strong. And so, and then on the other side, you know, you have, you know, you have your manufacturing PMIs, which are below 50, but you are sort of getting a rebound, even in Europe, Keith, believe it or not, you know, they're still negative, but they're starting to creep back higher. And so you got all these sort of cross currents, which makes it a really, you know, forgive the, the maritime pun, but it makes it really, really difficult to navigate these things. But I think Keith, you know, we, Keith talked about how the markets are sort of rolling over as more rate cuts are getting cut out. I stole it from you, Keith. <laughs> yeah, just on your on your I stole housing your line. I stole your line. On your housing <laughs> side, um, in terms of again looking at Rich, you and I have kind of debated this back and forth the last yeah. 12 months. But on the US <laughs> inflation side, you know, shelter CPI has been the the, the big sticking point, right? That's yeah. takes up a chunk of the basket and it's been really sticky. Rents have been relatively elevated. Uh so US apartment supply, which is basically units completed. Uh, new new construction completed uh, in 2023. They completed the most apartment units since 1987, um, with over 439,000 units completing, yeah. uh, and even more will complete. Even more are projected to complete in 2024. So we'll see an even higher number this year. Uh, so again, if you're looking at the rental market, that's why we're starting to see softness, uh, which again is, is a lagging indicator that feeds into that shelter CPI basket. So uh, again, I'd but... be curious to kind of see how that shapes up because I don't think many people are paying attention there. So one point for you, one point for me. One point for you is the delinquencies for uh, multifamily um, homes are starting to creep higher now. And so I thought that was interesting. Um, there's been a huge um, buildup of non of multifamily residential homes. I think if not, if not at all, because there was a massive like yeah. private equity boom, and yeah. you know everyone was becoming a multifamily apartment syndicator, right. <laughs> trying to collect fees and and yeah. uh, raise rents. So well, the the reason that's a point for you is to say that that's going to put more pressure on the rental market, downward pressure on the rental market. The point I have for me, because like you know you know because I think I'm right about this. So I got to support my view is that, um, that services X shelter is starting to rise. Um, mm -hmm. and on an annualized rate rate, um, we're now in the fives. I can't remember exactly the number we're now we've sort of, we've bottomed in and we've started to rise quickly. Um, again, um, which I think, you know, should, um, we talked about rate cuts, there's six or five, sorry, five priced in right now. And I think that that'll be continued to sort of get out. Uh, sorry, cut, get, you know, cut out. <laughs> sorry, Steve, I, Keith, I did it again. But also in Canada, I think we talked about this enough, you know, people are starting to get behind this rental increase. Um, I saw another chart from another company called Capital Economics, not to give a competitor a plug, but they're starting to sort of get on the whole population growth and the rental CPI stuff too. And and I think that's, it's just a totally two different countries with two different sort of- um, Hey, anecdotally, bottoms. anecdotally, hearing quite a bit of softening in the GTA rental market okay. um, from, from my close contacts uh, over there. So we'll, again, we'll see. It's interesting to shape up and, you know, people are kind of scratching their heads. They'll go, well, how, how can you get softening in rental markets and you have a million people a year coming in, you know, Hey, I don't know. Stranger things have happened. I think that uh, data is not perfect. And um, you know, sometimes you got to look at the anecdotes too. Yeah. So guys, one, one thing we didn't, uh, yeah, quite touch on. Um, so like, like, Bond yields went higher, and um, in, in over in the U.S. So, so what's happening? U.S. data it's it's still okay. It's like it's not deteriorating quickly. So with the PMI data that came out yesterday, or sorry, this morning for the Americans, it was richest diffusion index, and it came at fifty-one. So hey, it's it's growing. The Canadian data is done at forty-four 
yeah, 45. Which... So it, it it's coming down. So with, you know, we're, we're getting U.S. data that's showing the U.S. economy is not falling off a cliff. It's still okay. So therefore, remember we talked about this huge divergence in what the bond market was expecting to happen, which is a big recession. The equity market was saying, hey, you know, Alice, we're going to the moon and it's going to be, you know, the alligator jaws are, are going to close here. But the Canadian markets, you know, we also have our jobs number coming out tomorrow as well. And um, so again, the Canadian economy Random is slowing, it's rolling over. Yeah, it's, and uh, we got that job number tomorrow. So just say tomorrow, which is today for people listening, uh, <laughs> maybe you get this, you know, really strong US job number, a really weak Canadian number. And, you know, the currency just goes flying, maybe goes in, in the other direction. But this is what the market is looking at here right now. And uh, the big thing is interest rate expectations. You know, as Rich said, you know, the cuts are getting cut. And the last thing is I think we're, we're going to clue up here real quick. The election year in the U.S., the Fed will not hike after July. Ooh, that's a good Twinkie year. bet. Yeah, they, they'll have to stop then. But so much things to uh, talk about this year, and it, it's going to be an exciting one. Yeah, well, uh, as always, guys, we appreciate your support. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.